evening. We've got two Bible readings tonight. The first is from John chapter 4, verses 16 to 24, and then on to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. So starting with John chapter 4, verse 16. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And now on to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Amen. Well, good evening. I am just so excited to be here this evening. Uh, something that somebody once said was that envy is wanting what another has. Whereas jealousy is wanting what is rightfully mine. Now we know that God is jealous for us and as a source of all truth, no one else deserves all our worship. And I believe that we've done that this evening. In fact, I'm a bit hoarse after that forever song. Um, you know, just a wonderful worship. When we worship, we are, we are ascribing the highest value to God it's not subject to how we're feeling, like, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. It's not subject to how we're feeling. But worship is when we take our eyes off ourselves, when we fix our eyes on God, and we are bringing heaven down to earth into our current situations. It breaks the lie that God is not in control and that God is not able in 2 Chronicles 20, we have King Jehoshaphat. Now, there was a great multitude that come out against him and his army. And his response to God was, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And we saw King Jehoshaphat, he got the victory as the worshippers went out before him their eyes were fixed on God and he gave them the victory. When all we see is the battle, all he sees is what? The victory. 
God is worthy of our worship. Let's just take a moment to pray, church. Tonight, Heavenly Father, we just want to give you all the praise, all the honour, all the worship that's due your name. Father, let your kingdom come here and now. And would you just silence every voice of distraction, remove every lie, every deception that would seek to keep us from the truth of who you are. Lord, those who are weary among us, Lord, may we just enter into your rest. And may knowledge of you, may revelation of you just flow tonight from your word, bringing us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, I just want to pray your resurrection power just be imparted to us tonight, that we may know your peace, your hope, your joy, and experience life in all its fullness as you promised us. For your glory, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is the third part of our three-week series on worship. So um, Andrew, in the first week, he was talking to us about our worship being authentic. So it's about having a true heart towards God. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. It's not about giving lip service but it's genuine coming from the heart. We learned that that worship is our very purpose and a lifestyle of walking intimately with him. Our worship just demonstrates a reflection of how much we value Jesus in our lives. And it is one of the few things that's going to continue with us right into eternity. So we had authentic worship. Then Dan, last week, he was looking at the whole thing of abandoned worship. So do you remember King David, how, in fact, uh, Jason was talking about this morning, how he just danced before the ark of God. He was a man who had many failures, made many mistakes, but he received the grace and the forgiveness of God. And that gratitude just overflowed in his heart in worship. I think Dan set us a challenge last week to be more expressive in our personal lives. I just wonder how we got on with that this week because he was talking about how our one-to-one worship just overflows into our corporate worship. This week we are going to be moving on to have a look at being awakened to worship. So that is the title of today's message, being awakened to worship. So going back to King David, I I just love the Psalms. The the Psalmist just tells everybody to praise God all the time. And he was someone who was truly awakened to worship. Psalm 100 says, shout with joy to the Lord of the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with singing, with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, the people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness to each generation. Praise is something that all men do when they really care about something. 
like the whole world rings out in praise. Isn't she lovely? Isn't he magnificent? They, they express what they value and they want other people to get involved in expressions in the same manner. So if you read a great book or you watch a great movie, what is your inclination? What do you do when you do that? If you're anything like me, you want to tell everybody else about it. You post it on Facebook. You put it on WhatsApp. You express to everybody that you come in contact with how great it was. You want to shout it from the rooftops. And when we express, when we, when we enjoy something, it's like the, we're not getting the, the fullness of the enjoyment until we've actually expressed it to other people. So let's think about this movie. You've just watched the best movie ever. For me, it could be maybe War Room. Some of, some of you have probably seen War Room. Or The Case for Christ is another one. I did this. Okay, you celebrate. You're like, wow, that was amazing. And then you reach out to other people and you're telling everybody else how awesome it was. Then you say, you know what? I'm not just going to tell you about it. Come round to my place and let's watch it together. So it's like we've established ourselves as a group and now we're all in it together so they can enjoy it as well. You then, you then equip yourself and you equip others. You start watching the documentaries and you know, behind the scenes uh, snips and all the interviews and things. So you're equipping yourself with all the knowledge, all the understanding about what it is you've been watching. And then finally, you deploy others to share it. You encourage them to share what they have learned, what they've received from you, to go out and to share it with others. Hmm. That sounds very similar to something that we've been looking at as a vision for the church. When we've encountered Jesus, we cannot help ourselves but do the same. We become simply overwhelmed by the greatness of his love towards us. And it overflows in these expressions of celebration, reaching others, getting established, equipping ourselves and deploying as in getting involved in acts of service. We can't help it. It's a natural outflowing of our lives. When we really appreciate something, it just flows out from us. Our reading today was taken from John 4, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus' plan was to reveal who he was to her. And maybe to reveal something that she couldn't even admit to herself. So he says, go and get your husband. And her response is technically true. She says, I have no husband. I think we're probably all familiar with things that are technically true. She's probably just wanting to try and get this rabbi off her back so that he wouldn't question her any longer. But anyone who's got children will have heard this. Stop kicking me. I'm not kicking you. That's technically true. At that moment in time, they weren't actually kicking. She's touching me. I'm not touching her. 
Okay, so we know it's technically true. So what about some of us adults will have engaged with people and said, so where are you going to church? And the response might be, ah, well, I'm still looking. The truth is, it might have been five years that they've been living in a place and they've been to church three times. Technically, it's true. But maybe there's a conviction that takes place on the inside. Maybe I need to do something about this. We see in verse 18 something that would have probably just rung in the ears of this Samaritan woman at the well. You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's recognizing that there's something different about the man to whom she is speaking. He knows what she perceives to be everything about her. And this is a theme that we see in John's Gospel. So in chapter 1, we've got Nathaniel. And Jesus approaches Nathanael and he says, Now behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He can see that this is a man. He can see right through. He has the ability just to see at first glance what this person is like. Now whether that was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit or whether it was just because he was the Son of God, he just knew about this man. In chapter 2, You've got Jesus saying about the crowds, how he did not entrust himself to the crowds because he knew what was inside them. He knew them better than they knew themselves. And then in chapter 3, we have got Nicodemus. And he goes to Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And Jesus could see straight into his heart. He could see that he was a man of position, that he had proper etiquette, he was dressed well. And yet he saw into his heart that there was a need. There was a need to be born again. Jesus knew Nathanael. He knew the crowds. He knew Nicodemus. He knows the woman at the well. And he knows you and he knows me. He knows whether we've come here in sincerity of worship tonight or whether we're going through the motions. He knows the struggles or the pains that we're going through. He knows if we're hiding things, things that maybe our family, our friends don't know. Nobody else knows. But Jesus knows what's going on on the very inside of us right now. Let's just look back at the passage. So the woman at the well says to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. So how did the woman at the well respond to Jesus? Well, she went out and she told everybody. We're told that she went out and she shared the message 
that Jesus had spoken to her with all the people that she came into contact with. And the Bible tells us that many Samaritans, as a result, came to believe as a result of her testimony. She was awakened to worship. She, dis- she ascribed the worth and the value to Jesus that he deserved, reflecting the value that she placed upon him. Jesus went around healing people all over the place. It says how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and he went around healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. And how did people respond? I've got to tell somebody, even when Jesus said, shh, don't tell anybody that you've just been healed. Like, I, there's something locked up in me. I can't keep this quiet. I've been healed. I've been set free from my leprosy. My blind eyes have been opened. I have to tell somebody what Jesus has done for me. Does that resonate on the inside of us? I have to tell somebody how great a salvation I've received. As Jason said this morning, those who have been forgiven much love much. And when you know how much you have been forgiven, all you can do is just give yourself wholeheartedly in worship. I think about Peter and John. It was after Pentecost and they were going around and they were sharing the truth about the resurrection of Jesus. And the authorities come along and they lock them up and they say, you're not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Like, we can't obey man. We have to obey God. We can't do anything else. We have to speak the name of Jesus. We can't stop telling of all the wonderful things we have seen and heard. How about the Apostle Paul? Woe be unto me if I do not preach the gospel. There was a fire in his bones. He'd encountered the living Christ like he could do no other. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. How can I not preach such a wonderful name? There was just this theme in the early church. The people devoted themselves. There was just a lifestyle of worship. Worship was their purpose and it just reflected how much they valued Jesus. Even to the point of laying down their lives for him. Our passage today, when Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, made it very clear that it doesn't matter where we worship, whether it's one mountain or another mountain. We haven't got time to go into that today. But it's rather about how we worship. Scripture tells us a time is coming when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For those are the kinds of worshippers that God is seeking. Almighty God is seeking those who worship him according to his terms. Worship in spirit and in truth. This is a reflection of his nature and his character. He is spirit And he is truth. And in the same manner, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
I have a quote here from John Piper. He says, Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. You see, true worship has got to be connected and rooted in God the Father and the person of Jesus Christ. If we haven't got an understanding of who God is, it's not worship. Do we know the one whom we profess to worship today? It would just be so sad for Jesus to turn around to us and say to any of us, you worship what you do not know. You had Paul go to a place where there was actually a sign up saying it was an altar to the unknown God that Paul was able to reveal to someone. Wouldn't it be sad if Jesus was to say that about us? You worship what you do not know. You mean well, you're really into it, you're showing lots of emotion and passion, but you don't understand. You don't know me for who I really am. Our souls are active in praise. But it's the Holy Spirit who energizes our spirit to relate to God's spirit. Revealing Jesus to us and imparting knowledge, bringing things to our remembrance whilst we are in that place of worship. We're dependent on the Holy Spirit for that intimacy with God, our Heavenly Father. His gifts really help us in that regard. Maybe it's tongues in giving thanks to him. Prophecy in hearing responses to God's responses to our worship. And also revealing the glory of God through prophetic praise. You are healing broken hearts tonight. You are cleansing me from sin. You, you have this prophetic worship that arises on the inside as you're moved by the Spirit. How many times as, as the band is playing and they, they go into an instrumental, there's a song that rises up on the inside of us. We just want to express our heartfelt passion and our love and our adoration to him, declaring who he is and the love that he has for us. Grateful hearts just overflowing. Graham Kendrick said, to worship in spirit is to tap in to the very source of worship himself. The inexhaustible, endless, praising spirit of God and to allow him liberty to join with our spirit in expressing through our mind and body the worth of our saviour, Jesus, and the love of our heavenly father. Let's just think about truth. Andrew spoke a couple of weeks ago about our worship being authentic. When I think of truth, I think of the word sincere. Now, sincere, actually, when you break the word down, means without wax. 
You think, well, that's a really, really strange thing. Well, let me explain. So in the Roman times, pots would be made. And the idea of the pots would be maybe for cooking or to carry water. But what if, the, what if it had a crack in it? If they were wanting to sell a pot, what they would do is they would take some wax and they would seal the pot with wax. That way, they can show, oh, look, it's holding the water absolutely fine. No problem. I'll take your money. Thank you very much. But what happens when you heat that pot? What happens to the wax? It melts. And the pot is worthless. So being sincere means to be without wax. So it's true. It's a, it's a true reflection of, of the purpose for which it was made. It does what it says it should do. And that's how we should be in our worship. We need to be sincere without wax. It's not about looking good and not meeting the requirements. It is vital that we are authentic, that we are true. The Bible talks in Isaiah about my people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can be going through the motions, we could be lifting our hands in worship, but our hearts could be thinking about what we're going to have for dinner or our next holiday. Are we being, are we being true to what's really going on in the inside of us? How the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. Dan spoke about David's honesty before God. I mean, David is somebody who I often look to. because I think, you know what? If God can take somebody like David, who, had, who really did mess up, committing adultery, having somebody killed, and yet God still saw him as a man after his own heart. He saw that there was something in David that was just repentant and desired to just pursue him. And that kind of gives me hope. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's a prayer that David prayed and there's a constant prayer in my heart. God knows exactly what's going on in our hearts better than we do. What are we hiding from God today? Genuine Christ-exalting worship is the fruit of both heat and of light. So the light of God's truth shines into our minds and instructs us about who God is. This light in turn it ignites a fire of passion on the inside of us so that joy, love, gratitude and deep soul satisfaction is there present. So you've got the heat and the light, the emotion and the truth. If the truth of God's word causes you to lift your hands, dance, shout aloud, God bless you. However, if it leads you to solemn reverence and silent contemplation, God bless you. This is not about the outward appearance. This is about the heart. 
Man judges the outward appearance, but God looks upon our hearts. He knows what's going on on the inside. The key thing is that we are worshipping in spirit and in truth. God's always been very, very clear about what his worship expectations are. It's about him, and it's about revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to just look at a picture from Leviticus. So the priestly ordinances were such that God laid out very clear patterns of how worship, how sacrifices and things needed to be done, how, how they must and how they mustn't be offered. And so tonight we just wanted to have a quick look at the grain offering. So let's have a look at Leviticus 2. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, the offering is to be of the finest flour. They're to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So the purpose of the grain offering... This is not about atonement. This is an offering of worship. It was about praising God for his abundant supply during the time that they were there in the wilderness. In fact, what I found fascinating was the quantity of flour and oil that was required. It was the same quantity of flour as was given to the the Israelites when they were there in the wilderness. The same amount of manna is then to be given in flour offering to God. So let's just have a think about what these things represent. So the fine flour has to go through a lot of different processes. So it is buried in the ground and it grows it's threshed is beaten it's crushed it goes through many many different processes in order to become very fine flour so this is representative of christ himself jesus himself said that i am the bread of life he who comes to me will not grow hungry he will be satisfied So all the processes that the flower goes through reminds us of what Christ himself went through. Talks about him being a man of sorrows, a man of suffering. And so we think about the flower there. Another part was, of course, the oil. So the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus. He was poured out upon Jesus. And in the same manner, the oil would be poured out upon the flour as the offering is given. The third element is frankincense. So frankincense is something that would be burnt on the altar Now, whilst the oil and the the flour, portions of it would be given to the priest, all the frankincense would be burnt as an offering to God. 
because all worship belongs to him alone. It's not to be shared with anybody else. And so this would be burnt as a sweet-smelling fragrance. And we think of Christ and how the frankincense will represent Christ in his resurrection, that sweet smell ascending to the heavenly Father. Now, what I find interesting is the things that are not permitted in the offering. So every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, and you're not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord by fire. So why no yeast? Isn't isn't yeast good? Well, Jesus spoke several times about yeast actually being a symbol of sin. It's actually like a fungus. It's a mold. And so it's an appropriate symbol for sin. It's something that grows in bread dough in the same way that sin can just grow in our lives. Just a little leaven can sour the whole dough. Just in the same way that a little sin can really mess with our whole lives. The other thing that's not permitted was honey. You think, well, honey's good. Surely honey's got to be okay. But God forbids it. Because it's sweet, it's, it, looks, it looks wonderful before it's burnt. But once it's burnt, it just becomes a black, sticky mess. We need to be thinking about, are we going to be using frankincense or are we using honey? They're both sweet-smelling before they hit the fire. But once the frankincense starts to burn, it is a wonderful incense to God. But honey? You think honey is actually going to represent not living out the sweet things that we have said. So what are our prayers like? Are we saying sweet things but not living it out so we're like we're putting honey on the altar? Or are we determined to live out that which God has called us to do? We're going to do what our our lips have declared we're going to do and bring honour to God. We cannot bring worship that does not stand the fire. Jesus wasn't only the sacrificial lamb, he is the bread of life, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He gave his life as an offering of worship. He was tested, he was tried, and like that sweet incense, he rose in his resurrection. Can I have the band back, please? So what is the heart of worship for us today? It involves our whole lives. We are created to worship him. It's not just about singing and praising God and just hearing God's word, but we need to be able to respond to it on the inside, engaging our will and our emotions, worshipping in spirit and in truth. Let's listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. 
Don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know and be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. So what does that actually mean? This is a paraphrase that I think gets more into the core of what he is speaking about. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're eating, you're sleeping, you're going to work, you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God has done for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking about it. That's a really cha- real challenge for us today, isn't it? Being set apart, being different to the world around us. Instead, fix your attention upon God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognise what he wants from you. And be very quick to respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, developing well-formed maturity in you. He knows us intimately. He knows how deep some of the hurt that we've suffered in our life goes. He knows when we go through the religious motions, are we just going to church because it's something we've always done? Or are we true worshippers? You can't hide anything from Jesus. We need to be honest with him. We will allow the Spirit of God to convict us tonight. There's nothing we can bring to him that's going to be, oh, that's, that's terrible, that's such a surprise, I'm so shocked. Nothing shocks him. He knows. He knows where we're at this evening. He knows what we need. And as we open our hearts to him, we want to allow the Holy Spirit to come and to have his way, to convict us of any sin, to refresh us where we have become weary. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to make us holy, set apart for him, for his glory, for his purposes. Worship is our purpose and it reflects how much we value Jesus. Let's be awakened to worship God tonight. Let's eliminate everything that hinders us from entering into his presence so we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence so we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As an act of worshipful remembrance, this is something that was done daily by the church. Shortly after Jesus died, daily they gathered together in each other's homes. They shared fellowship. They broke bread together. And some of you may be thinking, oh, we did communion last week. Why are we doing it again? Because I believe that this is right at the core, right at the centre of our worship. It's a reminder 
of what we believe, who we profess to worship, is encapsulated in the bread and the wine. We're going to take communion or the Eucharist together tonight. Eucharist, we don't tend to use that word very much in the church circles that I've moved in, but the word charis from the word Eucharist is about grace. It's about joyful thanksgiving or heartfelt overflowing gratitude. And that's what we want to express to our Heavenly Father tonight. We're going to take bread and wine in remembrance of him. John's Gospel says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks. So blessed are you, Lord our God, King of heaven, who brings forth bread from the earth. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus himself is the bread of life, the bread of God who came down from heaven to bring life to the world. He's able to satisfy our deepest desires and our deepest longings. In the same way, he took the cup and said, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This is not just like my grandmother, who before she died, she showed me a bunch of flowers and said, these are forget-me-nots. Every time you see them, I want you to remember me. This is not the same. This is an unbreakable promise that has been given by God to us, guaranteeing eternal life all of us who have placed our trust in him do this in remembrance of me Jesus said he came that we may have life and have life in all its fullness how can we not give back to him all our praise all our adoration all our worship hanging upon the cross I think about how he faced the wine press of God's wrath. He became sin for us. Just as those grapes are crushed, so Jesus himself was crushed for us. The prophet Isaiah talks, Isaiah 53. He says, He took up our pain, He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
from our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way and yet the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All our sins, all our shame, all our guilt, all our pain laid upon him on the cross. And so we are going to give our lives back to him. As he took his final breath, he cried, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. The veil of the temple was torn in two, giving us clear access to the Heavenly Father. At the cross, he broke sin. He broke the power of death. And when we confess our sins, we can know because of what he's done that we are forgiven. To those who've received him, to those who believe in his name, he's given us the right to be called children of God. This is not something that everybody everywhere can say. This is unique to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. We are seen as righteous in his sight. Now, as the band continues to play this evening, there are stations around the room. There's two at the back, two at the front, and you can also come and receive here. I want this to be a time of consecration between yourselves and God. So you can come, you can take the elements. Some of you might want to just go back to your seat with your elements. Others of you might say, you know what, I just, I just want to kneel at the cross. You might want to just go to a quiet place on your own in the room. Maybe if you want to have someone to pray with, the prayer team will have the purple lanyards on and they will make themselves available for you to just come and, and talk to about anything that's really laid on your heart that you want prayer for. Any guilt, any shame, any pain, anything that is stopping you from having just a clear heart before God this evening, let's, let's get rid of it. Let's be reconciled if there is issues relationally, one with another. Go to one another and say, look, you know, I just really want to make this right. And you might want to have communion together this evening. We're just going to have a time of personal reflection as the band plays. And then we will all take communion together.